Welcome to another episode of the Pastor's Call Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Webb. Before we begin today's episode, I want to thank the sponsor for the show. It's Blue Water Free Methodist Church, where I have the pleasure of serving. We're an intentional community reflecting Jesus to our world. I'm so excited today that you have joined us in another episode of the Pastor's Call podcast, where our hope, our goal, our vision is to encourage those who are interested pursuing or in the pastoral ministry by hearing the stories of those who've gone before. Of course, if you're not in the ministry, it doesn't mean you can't listen to the show. I'm sure there's encouragement from the lives of of the stories uh, that are shared here each week on Wednesday. So thank you so much for joining well, today I'm so excited to have joining me a friend of mine, Christian Fahey. He He's currently serving in a uh, marketplace role, but has uh, an amazing story and plenty of ministry experience to boot with that. So Christian, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Joel. Well, Christian, let's just get right into it. Uh, I'd love for you to share a little bit about you, your background, and what you felt your call to ministry was. Okay, so I I was born a month before President Kennedy was assassinated, uh, born into a devoutly Roman Catholic family, uh, was raised Roman Catholic uh, up until my teen years. That meant eight years of parochial school, grade one through grade eight in Lapeer, Michigan, uh, was sacramentalized, so I had I was baptized in the church for confession, uh, first communion, was confirmed in the church, uh, served as an altar boy, did it all. Um, thought at one time about possibly going to uh, a seminary uh, in Ontario to, uh, you know, a Catholic seminary for for high school, but I didn't go in that direction. As I got into my teen years, uh, family family went through some adversity, and uh, I just got bored with the Catholic Church. And so I, I did what most young men did in their teens. I was a rock and roll musician, and uh, so I was interested in music and girls and, and partying. Did that into about my 16th year, um, and then when I turned, when I was between 16 and 17 years old, about my 10th, 11th grade years, I just got disillusioned with kind of the whole party uh, scene and kind of asking myself, isn't there more? I remember distinctly being on a road in uh, Lapeer County, uh, coming home from partying all night and hearing over the radio that ACDC lead singer Bon Scott had drank himself to death. And that just, that stayed with me. And it was kind of like, you really want to go down this road. So for the, for the rest of that year, that was February, 1980. For the rest of that year, I was kind of on, on a searching path um, in the, in, in the fall or at the beginning of the winter uh, at the end of uh, third week of third week of December in uh, 1980, I happened to be over jamming with my guitar teacher, who himself was a born again Christian, and uh, I had seen Christian books and stuff on on the the dresser shelves or whatever. And that evening, that Friday evening, I started asking him about it, and that's when the Lord opened up my heart. Now in the Catholic Church, I don't. I don't begrudge my Catholic upbringing. I'm thankful for it. If I had to do it all over again, I'd do it all over again. But I did. I knew. I knew God sacramentally and liturgically, but I didn't really know Him personally. And so something just opened up, and I began following Jesus on my own as a disciple. And I'll tell you what, my life radically changed. That you know, 
into January 1981. 1981 is the year everything changed for me. So as I, you know, what I knew early on in 1981, I would, you know, occasionally visit the Catholic Church, but I was hungry for the things of God. And so uh, the guys that I was closest to, they were all six years older than me. Uh, they uh, were involved uh, with this movement of charismatic churches uh, that had really intense Bible studies. And so uh, they said, hey, you want to go to one of these Bible studies? I lived in Lapeer, Michigan, about 20 miles east of Flint. And this Bible study meeting every Thursday night met in Lansing, Michigan, about an hour and 10 minutes away. I said, I'm down for it. So on March or on May 21st, 1981, I attended my first charismatic Bible study meeting. Now, our group was uh, was basically a charismatic Anabaptist strain that was that was centered from uh, centered in a larger ministry in north central Indiana. And so very intense place, place of very intense fellowship. And they took the study of the Bible and they took the word of God and theology seriously. And so here I am, I'm 17 years old, and they've got all these teaching tapes on the wall. The head of the of the movement uh, was a guy named Dr. Hobart E. Freeman. You can, you can look him up on Wikipedia, on YouTube. There's more sermons and information there than, uh, than you could possibly digest in a month. Uh, but, I get, but he himself had, was a seminary-trained theologian. He'd gotten his Ph.D. at Grace Theological Seminary. And so later he'd come into the charismatic experience. And out of his big church in north-central um, Indiana, just outside of Warsaw and Winona Lake, he had a charismatic uh, church, a charismatic teaching center. And so they devoted a good deal of time to teaching people the word of God in a very serious sort of way. So that first year, especially, I mean, I'm still in 11th and then going into 12th grade. I mean, I was dead serious about it. I wanted to learn it all. So I can remember being 18 years old and teaching myself how to read Hebrew and Greek. Um, and, and, you know, having a Jewish stepdad, he would help me out some with uh with the hebrew and so he would tell me this word means this and this word means that he would we do we talk about the israeli national anthem and and he helped me because he'd gone to hebrew school and so uh i got very intense intensely involved with the group as i moved into 1982 i graduated from high school and my church was over in lansing and i lived over in lapeer and i wanted to be a part of this church and so a few months after graduating i moved over on the other side of Lansing in with uh, a couple who uh, who went to the went to my church and they were the ones who actually stewarded the whole tape lending library and when I Joel when I'm talking about tapes I'm talking about thousands of teaching tapes not just nice devotional messages but biblical theology Old Testament theology New Testament theology Hebrew studies uh, Christian ethics, Old Testament survey, New Testament survey, studies of books of the Bible, studies on faith in the deeper life, spiritual warfare, the dangers of the occult, all of that stuff. Hmm. For a guy who was hungry to know the word of God, uh, it was a feast. And I learned so much there. Now, um, I got deeply involved in, in the church, but the church had, um, had some problems. And the biggest problem was um, it was a charismatic church. That wasn't the problem. The problem was 
they believed in divine healing in a certain way. And what they taught, and what Dr. Freeman taught, was that because Jesus bore our, our sicknesses and pains on the cross, according to the Hebrew reading of Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6, uh, that therefore a Christian's responsibility when he's sick is to go to Jesus in prayer and ask God to heal him, claim his healing, or have the elders anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord and pray for him, and that it was a sin for a Christian to go to a doctor. Well, predictably, throughout the 70s and 80s, in, in the central church down there in North Webster, Indiana, uh, a number of people, older people or babies, died because either their parents did not take them to get medical help, and maybe they got Maybe they got sick or, or women gave birth at home and they got complications and they didn't have proper help there to, to, to help them through the complications and either the mother or the child or both died in childbirth. And so this very quickly got the attention of the authorities. And so there was a lot of negative media that was published back in the 70s and in the 80s. If you read the, the books on cults by, uh, by someone like Dr. Ronald Enroth back in the cult expert in the 70s and 80s, uh, you would see Faith Assembly and Dr. Hobart E. Freeman um, featured in these books. Not, not extensively, but he did talk about the fact that this was an Orthodox Christian group that had an extreme in one of its beliefs. Now I need to stop right here and say, that I'm very thankful for the good things that I got in this environment. Make no mistake about it. It was not the Roman Catholic Church that gave me my love for the scriptures. Okay, though I appreciate things that I got from the church. The love from the scriptures came from uh, these teachers and my colleagues and friends uh, in this movement, in the, in the faith ministries movement. And so they gave me something that I can never repay them for. But there were problems. Mm. And so the longer I lived and stayed in this group, the more the more extreme my views became, the more kind of extreme and paranoid my behavior became. I, I, I got increasingly isolated from my family and my friends. And uh, this got the attention of my of my parents. And so toward the end of 1984, I, I, I lived over in, in Lansing for about a year and a half. Then I moved back home, lived with my mom and my stepdad for a while. But I, I felt like living with them because they were medical professionals. My mom was a nurse. Uh, my stepdad was uh, an osteopathic physician. And I felt that just living with them and helping them, you know, with their medical stuff, whether they were reading medical journals or whatever, was somehow displeasing to God because I was helping something that was outside of God's plan and something that was forbidden. And so I moved out toward the end of 1984. And I remember going down to visit my mom early in 1985. And I told her that I had um, interest in a girl in this group and, uh, and that, you know, I might end up marrying her. And, and my mom said, well, do you love her? And I said, well, I'll grow to love her. And she got alarmed. So she didn't tell me what she did after that, but that really, you know, she was concerned because, you know, I'd get a, I'd get a cold and I wouldn't take any medicine. I would just pray or, or, or take vitamin C's and that kind of thing. So she was concerned about me, but she was also concerned about her future grandchildren. Well, at the time, 
in in the 19 in the mid 1980s when I moved back in with my parents I worked for three and a half years for uh, former Detroit Tiger uh, pitcher Mickey Lolich I was his day baker and I got to know Mr. Lolich very well worked with him uh, every week we worked together as bakers okay and so I was working for Mr. Lolich um, at the time and uh, she was she was quite concerned about this. And so she approached me uh, toward the end of February. I had moved out of out of my folks house and was living with one of my friends who, who was a part of this ministry. And she said, hey, would you like to go visit your relatives in Omaha? I was born in Omaha in 1963. And so I said, well, let me get, let me go ask Mr. Lolich and see what he says. And so I went to I went to him and he said, yeah, that's fine. So took five days off. And so mom says, okay, great. So I came down on a Thursday night. It was February 28th, 1985. The next day, uh, one of one of uh, one of the one of my mom's and uh, stepdad's employees, their housekeeper and, and basically their their right hand took us down to uh, Detroit Metro Airport, put us on a plane, and we flew into Omaha. And as we flew into Omaha and got off the plane, my mother said, Hey there's been something that's happened at your aunt Mary's house. They had a grease fire in the kitchen. We're going to have to go and get a room until they get it cleaned up. And then hopefully we can go over there. I said, Oh, that's fine. So we went to the West side of Omaha and we checked into the best Western dropped off our bags. And then we were pretty hungry and I wanted to get a cup of coffee. So we went down to the coffee shop and we were down there having a cup of coffee. I was talking to a Catholic priest who happened to be up at the coffee bar. My mom slipped away to make a phone call. You know, I figured, you know, to check on my aunt. And so she came back and uh, she said, OK, all right, I called your aunt and, and, you know, hopefully we'll be able to get over there later. So uh, we said she said, OK, let's head back to the room. So we went back to our room and she handed me the key and she said, here, why don't you go ahead and open it, open it up? I said, no problem. And so put the key in, opened it up. And as I as I took one or two steps in from the closet to my left in the bathroom to my right five people jumped out of those rooms they grabbed me they threw me onto the bed they bound my hands and feet with duct tape they stuck a rag in my mouth it was one of those it was one of those um motels that had an alley exit as well as as well as a hallway entrance okay so that it was it was strategically planned and so they carried me out, these five guys and a gal, carried me out into this van that was in the alleyway. They put me in the back of the van. The window, the back windows were cardboarded off. Uh, and then we sped away. Now, within, within 30 seconds, a minute, I knew exactly what was going on uh, because this had happened to other people in our group. We were warned that, be careful, there, have, there are some parents who are kidnapping people out of our group, they think we're a cult, and and they're doing that. So I knew, I knew I was not, you know, I was not being kidnapped by people in the drug cartel. But uh, so off we went west. Uh, that was a Friday afternoon, two thirty in the afternoon. I got kidnapped, and uh, we drove all night. We drove all the way west through Denver, and then down into northern uh, New Mexico. And by seven thirty the next morning, uh, we were in Santa Fe. 
On the way down there, what had happened was there were two vehicles. There was the van, which had about five people in it, an older guy that I faintly, faintly recognized at the time, uh, and then four other dudes. And then there was there was a follow pickup truck with a gal driving it and my mom in it. Okay, so mom was behind the whole thing. Okay, so we we drive through. I mean, now this is what I mean by you were held captive. What they did um, could have landed them in jail. Okay, it was against the law. Okay, and still is. And still is still against it's the law, still illegal. Back in back in the seventies and eighties, uh, following on uh, Ted Patrick, one of the pioneer deprogrammers, he wrote a book called "Let Our Children Go." Um, the, back in those days, you had a lot of young people who were getting involved in all sorts of groups, all sorts of groups, not just extremist Christian groups, but uh, people, uh, things like uh, the Unification Church of Reverend Moon or the Hare Krishnas, or the Children of God, or the Way International, or, or all sorts of other groups, okay? And so they knew that they were, t- and so what, what would happen in those days is you would get, um, they, kids would get kidnapped, you know, they, would, they might have been in their late teens, or like me, I was 21 at the time, uh, kidnapped, and some of the time, if they got caught, if the kidnappers got caught, they'd get hauled before the judge, and the judge saw that there was a bigger issue at play and they would kind of give them a slap on the wrist or kind of acquit it because they realized, well, what the parents were trying to do is help their kid who'd gotten mixed up in the wrong group and wasn't thinking straight. But but not all the judges did that. In other cases, the judges threw the books at the kidnappers. And so we're driving down, you know, and, and literally, if I had to go to the bathroom, I couldn't I couldn't leave the van. They gave me a little a little like a coffee cup to pee in. And so we're driving through. I remember waking up about three o'clock in the morning, driving through downtown Denver, and I was looking out the window and then they sort of covered up the window so I couldn't see it. And so about six o'clock the next morning, I see signs for Las Vegas. I'm thinking, oh, wow, we're going to Sin City. Are you kidding me? I didn't know there was such a place as Las Vegas, New Mexico. Okay, (laughs) we were headed south. But anyway, uh, we're, we're approaching Las Vegas and then we pulled over to the side of the road and they said, okay, we're gonna make, we're gonna make an exchange. Obviously I was gonna stay there, but what they did is one of the dudes ju- jumped out of the van that I was in and went back into the pickup truck with the gal who was driving. And my mom came into the van with me hmm. and she got into the van. And of course I was furious. And the first words out of my mouth were, do you realize you've just committed a federal offense? I, she'd had me kidnapped and transported over two state lines. And she she got, she got started to cry and she said, you don't understand, you and your friends, this group you're involved in, you don't know what, what's going on. And I was just, I was furious. Anyway, so we went down to, and they found a safe house from somebody that had gone through a deprogramming uh, before that in Santa Fe and there I stayed stuck in a room um, from Saturday morning, uh, March 2nd, to the following, um, to the following Friday morning. Um, I was put in this room, the, the, the windows were covered over with cardboard. If I had to go to a bathroom, go to the bathroom, they wouldn't let me out of the room. I had to use a porta potty and wrap myself in, um, in a sleeping bag. 
they they took away my belt they took away my wallet they took away my bible <laughs> okay and uh but they did give me a stenographer's notebook and there we sat for the next week and i underwent what is called a deprogramming now de deprogramming is kind of a sensational word but basically what a deprogramming is is a very intense form of reevaluation typically when you're in an unhealthy um environment and an unhealthy group and i don't you don't confine this just to religious groups joel uh this can include business enterprises this can include government mm -hmm. um the the cult the features of cultic behavior are found in systems mm -hmm. it's not just religious systems and so you can see cultic behavior in, in governmental figures uh you can see cultic behavior in certain business environments you can see cultic behavior in certain political movements, and you can see them in religious environments. They get the most, they get the most um, attention in religious environments. So for the next week, every day, all I could do was write stuff down. And of course, I've got a voluminous memory. So I, I, wrote, I wrote pages and pages and pages of scriptures that I'd memorized, but most of them I didn't really memorize. It just I would hear them on teaching tapes and just remember them and, and be able to repeat them verbatim. But I also took notes and I still have all the papers from that week. I have the, those journals. I've transcribed them into like a hundred page document or, or no, not a hundred page document, a document of about 30, 30 plus pages with over a hundred footnotes giving background. And so what happened is they gradually, the deprogramming went like this. I had a deprogrammer who, who herself, she was a nurse but she had gotten her mind burned by transcendental med meditation. And uh, she was very aggressive and not, not particularly nice. Uh, and so each day we weighed in, we'd weighed in um, deeper into discussions, eventually coming to a day when they started talking about my group. First couple of days, we watched videos of cult movies. We had discussions about cultic literature, one one uh, work that we examined each day was uh, chapter 22 from Harvard professor Robert J. Lifton's book, Thought Reform in the Psychology of Totalism. That book was his study of, of U.S. Um, prisoners of war who were taken captive in the Korean War. And these were patriotic guys, and they got, they got brainwashed and became communists. And so when they finally got back to American soil, and got their thinking straight, he interviewed all these former POWs and he isolated eight criteria by which you can, you can change the thought of somebody. Brainwashing hmm. tends to be a sensational term, but, but as a science, um, there's something about it and it works. If you can control the information that people are getting, if you can, if you can manipulate their feelings and their emotions, you can change the way people think and they will follow your group think. And so we, we, we went through chapter 22 of Lifton's book over and over and over again. And then gradually they started getting around to playing, playing tapes of people who left my group. And of course, I was very reactive. Oh, you blasphemed the Holy Spirit. You called it a cult. You've done this or that or the other thing. But then there came a day, it was probably the Wednesday and the Thursday of the following week. They started asking some questions that I couldn't, that I couldn't answer. First of all, they'd raised some allegations about the leaders of the group that I was a part of 
that, well, I had no answer for. And I went back and I did some investigation and they didn't turn out to be valid um, allegations. But their questioning forced me to take a good hard look inside. First couple of years that I was part of this movement, I was so on fire. The last year and three quarters that I was a part of it, I gradually was less at ease with it. Because what happens is when you're in an unhealthy group, the leaders um, in an unhealthy environment, leaders discourage questioning. They hate people who are shining a light and saying, what are you doing? What kind of things are you doing? And so not surprisingly, um, in those days, the leaders of our movement had a very antagonistic um, attitude toward the news media. The news media were of the devil. The news media can't tell the truth if they if they tried. And uh, so when you hear echoes of that in, in the last seven or eight years here uh, in our country, um, I've, I heard that before. I heard that in the early 80s. And it's not healthy. You need people looking over your shoulder, even if they don't like you. But what happens is, is, is something gets inside the head of somebody who's a true disciple, and they think they don't even ask themselves the questions like when they look at things that are not consistent and um, when they look at at some of the fruit of some of the teachings they're afraid to ask those questions because they're told and what typically happens in a cultic environment is you have some version of if you leave our group you are leaving god if you leave our group you're going to become uh demonized if you if you leave our group you will go to hell there's some version of that, and and I've 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 had some traffic with other groups since then. That was the most extreme group I was a part of at the time. Yeah. Long for short, by the way, that whole movement eventually fell apart. Mm-hmm. Okay, but um, I've seen that ever since, and there's always some mystical manipulation that that goes something like, if you leave us, uh, you're backsliding from God, mm-hmm. and so when you're in that environment, you won't ask those questions of yourself. But also, uh, you're terrified of even entertaining the thought of leaving the group. And so it was Thursday night in Santa Fe, New Mexico, um, March, March 7th, okay? And it's, it's, it's getting late. It's about 10 o'clock at night. And I had made the decision after, after being presented with a lot of stuff that I had to at least check out. Mm-hmm. Um, I called... Uh, a guy named Steve, who had been a part of our movement, he was going to school up in Fort Collins, Colorado. I called him at night and I talked to him and, and man, I was shaking as I was talking to him saying, look, I'm thinking about stepping out of this for a while to, uh, to, you know, they told me some things about, about the leaders and so on and so forth. I'm thinking about stepping out of this for a while. And, and there was something in talking to Steve and something that I sort of figured out and it was this, that the truth can stand scrutiny. And if you can't ask questions, then maybe it's not truth. And I can't tell you, Joel, what it feels like to be in that position because I was afraid to leave the group and I was afraid to stay. And I almost lost my mind. It was terrible. Uh, my mom sobbed her guts out that night. And so I made the decision that night that, look, when I went home, I was going to step away from the group and do some investigating on my own. And so uh, the next day they let me out. I was able to shave. I was able to take a shower. I was able to use all the amenities. And there, there began for me the beginning of, uh, of a long uh, kind of a, 
quasi career in the kingdom of the cults and the kingdom of spiritual abuse and aberrant religious movements. And so, you know, we went back to we went back to Omaha. I was I was terrified to fly back to Omaha. I, I went back with the people who kidnapped kidnapped me, one of whom was my uncle, who was a private eye in um, in Omaha at that time. And he had been involved in rescuing people out of religious cults and out of white supremacist cults. And I, I thought I recognized him when they grabbed me. And then sure enough, when we got in the holding house, it's like he got his head right. I'm laying down on the floor, angry as, as, a, as a hatter. And he says, I'm your Uncle Denny, and I'm going to find you. And if you escape, I'll find you in Michigan. <laughs> you know, so he, he, was, he was about five foot nothing, about 100 pounds soaking wet. He would have taken on Goliath. He was an mm-hmm. ex Anyway, so we went back to Omaha. I spent about a week there with my family also doing some reading. And then I traveled across the country talking to people who left our movement. Mm. And uh, it was terrifying because you, I'm stepping out of something that I I had been told over and over and over again. If you call us a cult, you blaspheme the Holy Spirit. If you leave our group, you are leaving God. You're going to go to hell. And uh, it was it was awful. I was I was lonely for the rest of that summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then eventually I, I, I started figuring out by people who reached out to me that God was not done with me. And I started finding out what healthier groups hmm. look like. And so from that time on, hmm. um, I mean, I, like I said, I've had some experience with other groups that had gotten unhealthy. You, you're familiar with some of them yourself. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I was able to sniff certain things out while I was there because I had experience from 1981 to 1985 hmm. in an unhealthy environment so my life since then in 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 regards to this in regards to toxic religion has been uh one of continual learning uh from time to time people i'll be referred people will be referred to me to answer their questions i've had people call me up one guy uh called me up in the 1990s i want to say and he said look my wife has gotten involved with this cult should i go have her kidnapped and i always tell people look uh, I wouldn't. The, I, I don't think that that's why. I, I think my my family did that because they were concerned about me. But I would not counsel anybody to do that because I have. Uh, I still have an exaggerated struggle re- reflex, and everybody in every work environment that I've ever had since 1985 knows not to come up behind me and just tap me on the shoulder because I'll jump out of my skin. Mm-hmm. That was getting grabbed in that hotel room. Yeah. I, I would never counsel people to go ahead and have a loved one kidnapped, but we, I, nowadays they don't do that. More these days, it's called an intervention, and it's more, it's it's less coercive. Mm-hmm. You know, try to bring somebody into a room and reason with them. Yeah. But back in those days, they did they did kidnap, and so mm-hmm. uh, learned a lot in that sort of way. And I I I hope to use that to help people see when they're in a spiritually abusive situation. Understand that not. If a pastor is telling you, telling you, no, that doesn't mean he's spiritually abusive mm-hmm. or if he's saying, look, the, the scriptures say this, you're crossing this line. You're not in a state of grace with God. That's not spiritual abuse, mm-hmm. but, but spiritual abuse is the way in which people pastor. There are basically two types of cults, and this is where people get, get hung up. There are the historic heterodox groups that are cultic and and by that i'm not going to name them but these are groups who have a who have an understanding of the person and and uh the essence of jesus of nazareth 
that that falls outside of the apostles and the Nicene creeds. Okay, they're, they're heterodox in their view of Christ and the scriptures. That's one kind of cult. Walter Martin has written books on uh, the kingdom of the cults, identifies groups like that. The other kind of cult is what I would call um, social dynamics cults. And that could be groups that in their theology, they're pretty orthodox, but in their praxis, in their praxis, in the way that they, in the way that they relate to their people, it becomes unhealthy and abusive. And, and, and people, let me tell you, have come out of the woodwork write books about that so that's where i'm at hmm. with that aspect of my life so it has informed my own pastoral mm-hmm. my own pastoral work yeah well thank you so much for sharing that story it's um you know in one way it's an amazing story of god's grace and providence um okay. you know even though your family went to an extreme you know god utilized that to to bring you to where you are today and um, we're thankful for that. And so in, in the context, you know, on the pastor's call, we're talking about, um, you know, pastors, their call to ministry. And uh, as someone like you had said, that comes out of kind of one of those situations where the, it's an issue of praxis, not necessarily belief, yes. um, kind of dealing with cult-like behaviors, you know, you know, a central, you know, figurehead and, and a lot of those other things. Um, what from your experience and what you've seen practically, particularly for leaders as well, um, can you identify some of the things for people who are in those kind of cults of practice, not necessarily yeah. of, of belief, but cults of practice um, that we're both familiar with? Uh, maybe talk about, and maybe more on the leader side for people who have been in leadership roles that have come out of those. Um, you know, what are, what are some of the things that leaders can look for? What are some things that pastors can look for as self-evaluation and evaluation of the system that they're working in? You know, am I in one of these cult-like situations that we can really say, okay, you know, this is not this, you know, but maybe it is. So could you touch on that? I I can. Um, First of all, groups like this have a tendency to be, to centralize either around a charis- I'm using charismatic in the small C sense, mm-hmm. uh, a charismatic figure, somebody who's dynamic, somebody who's um, a good communicator, somebody who's got charisma. Um, they, they will either center the movement around that or they will center the movement around a particular doctrine, like a pet doctrine. Typically, doctrinal errors in that sort of way are usually truths that have been taken to an extreme. And so you've, it's either a person or uh, the doctrine. Sometimes it's both. Um, Dr. Freeman was um, was a very good communicator. He was a good teacher. Uh, he was very easy to listen to. He wasn't particularly charismatic in the sense that uh, the televangelists would be, but he always had something to say. But in our particular movement, it was a certain doctrine about healing that Christians that he, he said specifically. And I can point you to specific messages where he came right out and said, look, it's a sin for a Christian to go to a doctor when Jesus shed his blood on the cross. So you have that. For the leader in his own self-evaluation, he has to understand one thing. Number one, it's what it's what Nobel Prize winning physicist Dr. Richard Feynman said. Feynman said, uh, the first rule is you must not deceive yourself and you are the easiest person to deceive. Hmm. He was right about that. 
And, and where that works in, in the life and heart of a pastor is a pastor has to go against his own instinct and welcome um, critical thought. Now, now, some people just chew the rag, but there are other people who are saying, hey, you know, you've got ketchup on your tie. If you find yourself resenting people in your life and in your church who are coming to you and saying, um, you've got ketchup on your tie, you're in trouble because that is a protection for you. And I look, man, I have seen church boards that have been that have had that have had adversarial relations and that was not edifying. Uh, I've seen uh, I've seen church and religious boards where it was stacked with uh, guys who were just going to say yes and amen to whatever the pastor said. Mm -hmm. That was not healthy because it encouraged uh, this cancer inside of, of the leader to metastasize. Mm -hmm. um, and so you have to find a way to welcome um, people into your life who are going to ask you the tough questions mm -hmm. and, and to not resent it. And the easiest thing in the world to do, I think for pastors, and I see it all over the place, is to stack your board with people who are either close friends or family members. Now, that's not to say that that a senior pastor should not have his own children uh, serving in the church with him. But you've got to have balance there. It can't just be it can't just be people who know you and love you and who will give you a pass where maybe God wouldn't. And so you've got to you've got to. Um, have voices in your life that are going to ask you the tough questions and say, hey, stop, you're not going to do this. Another question, another thing that you can do um, and it is kind of a warning sign when it's not being done is to ask, ask tough questions about money. Okay, where's the money going to? There's a reason why um, ECFA was created, the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability, because um, as my wife likes to say, when the money's funny, look out, honey. That's what happens in organizations. Um, when, when shifty and crooked things are being done and when you've got leadership, and this could be, this could be a pastor, it could be a business operator, uh, when he's not listening to his board or he's got a board stacked uh, to just tell him what he wants, that's a danger sign because you can have all sorts of wrongdoing. So if, if there's resistance on questions if you find yourself as a leader resisting questions like what are you doing or what are you what's going on with the money or why are you teaching this in the face of this other information here um then that's a warning sign i'm also leery of any kind of leader or pastor who discourages reading material that is not necessarily supportive of their doctrine or their movement okay now some stuff again there's some books that are written where where the author is just chewing the rag but a lot of people are writing books saying, hey, we need to ask some serious questions about this. Mm -hmm. Okay. We've had we've had numerous cases, even recently, where you've got you've had high profile leaders who, because they're human and maybe they didn't have the kind of oversight that they needed, God only knows, they got themselves into into a weak moment and they ended up hurting people and they ended ended up doing things that they ought not have done. And sometimes it gets buried and then the bodies surface, you know, two decades later or whatever. And so you have to be open to scrutiny. That's the biggest thing. If you're not open to scrutiny, you're, you're a candidate for deception. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and again, just that thought, you know, if, if it's true, it can stand the test of questions. And, if you're, and if you're not allowed to ask certain questions or if you do ask questions, 
Um, you know, I, I can remember certain situations bringing up concerns and those concerns are immediately refracted back to you as you are the problem because you're talking about this. Um, you know, that, that certainly can be a sign and, you know, something my pastor regularly, uh, says, which is interesting, you know, so often we can be so quick to say, well, if, if we're facing opposition, it must mean the enemy's coming after us. Well, the question is, what if it's God opposing you, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, certainly doesn't No, those are valid, yeah. valid concerns. And as you're saying that I'm thinking about someone that, uh, someone that, you know, because you and I, I've known, I've known your father and mother over three decades. Okay. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, we we know certain people and we're conversant with certain people just having known each other for decades. Uh, but I can remember when when there were people that we you and I both know who when uh, the very effective and good and uh, and a book that I would highly recommend the book The Subtle Power of Spiritual Abuse by Ben Vondren and Johnson came out. Uh, I'm told that uh, one of these individuals individuals actively. Uh, told the people under their influence, do not read that book. Mm -hmm. And the reason was, is because that kind of book, which basically is an extended um, exposition of Jesus excoriating uh, religious abusers in Matthew 23. Mm -hmm. And and so when you resist scrutiny, you're in trouble. I also would add this one thing. One of the things that I've seen, oh gosh, from the time that I left the, the faith ministries movement, um, one thing that, that kind of stood out to me that I think is a bit of a red flag is when I see certain pastors or certain leaders who um, really are heavy on the importance of authority. Now, they're, 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 uh, God does establish authority. They're, they're, the universe runs by authority. Mm -hmm. uh, institutions run by authority. Authority is not bad. But when they're constantly hopping, uh, harping on, on the importance of authority and not asking questions of authority, and you know you better obey me, and if I'm wrong, God will hold me accountable. Um, I think that that's that's a real danger sign. I think I think guys like that um, are get themselves in a lot of trouble. They'll get a book which is I think a decent book, Spiritual Authority by Watchman Nee, but they'll run with it. And I mean, there's a whole, whole nother side, uh, a whole nother movement in charismatic, uh, in the charismatic renewal, which dates back to 1959, uh, but which took place in the 70s and 80s, um, that was built on this whole idea of hierarchical authority. And the people, the, the leaders who started that, virtually all of them left it and they said that we got into error because we were, we were being motivated by human ambition. But there are people that I know who came out of that movement and and the stories are awful mm -hmm. because, you, I mean, you could barely go to the bathroom without asking your pastor. I think that's an abusive thing. So you've got to, I, th I think, servant leadership is a curative for that. I think openness to correction. I think um, and and here's the deal, Joel, because you're you're in the free Methodist denomination. And so there's some structure there. There's some accountability. And, and that's a good thing. But I will say this structure and accountability is only as good as the people who are practicing it. Mm -hmm. If you've got, if you've got a pastor, whether they're a man or a woman or whatever in a movement, that's got all sorts of accountability structures, but they are not willing to, to bend to that. If they resist that, and then you, there's ways you can weasel out of that kind of, a, kind of, kind of account of accountability. Um, 
they'll they can take their their congregation even if, if it's in a historic denomination they can take them and end up in the in the ditch yeah yeah wow there there's so much good stuff and i would you know this could turn into a you know a 10-hour master class just with you know how much i know you're able to get into that and thank you so much for what you have and and i hope that uh for those who are listening if you're a pastor that um, you know, there's some self-evaluation, even just a, a lay person in the church, there's self-evaluation. Um, and if you're feeling uneasy where you're at, there's a reason for it. Um, yes. you know, yes. I've, I've had that, um, you've had that other people that we know that have been in situations, if you're feeling uneasy or that, you know, the math doesn't add up hypothetically or literally, mm-hmm. um, there's a reason for that. Uh, you know, the Lord gives us a, us our gut, so to speak for a reason, um, and seek the Lord and pursue it. And, um, it'll be uncomfortable. Um, it'll be topsy turvy, but, um, uh, maybe the Lord is, is directing you out of, out of somewhere that's not healthy. Um, yes. they can seem to have all the Nicene check boxes, right. But you know, there's just something that might not feel right. So, um, that's, that's an encouragement and thank you for getting into that Christian. And, um, I hope someone who's listening, you know, I wish I had something like this that I could have listened to, um, you know, to really get into that. So I know you already mentioned a book, the, the subtle power of spiritual abuse, but, um, there's a Spurgeon quote. I love, he talks about living in the Bible, but reading many good books. And we've been transformed by the power of God through the Holy spirit, through his word. But what have been some of those other good books as well, uh, that you've just appreciated over the years? Is that have it just informed my pastoral call, or are you talking specifically about the, in, in the realm um, of the cults? What, uh, would certainly love maybe a couple of both. Okay. Okay. Um, over the years, uh, the kinds of things that have informed me, um, especially in the 80s, I read a lot of uh, Francis Schaeffer. That's been, uh, that's been very good for me. Uh, when I was in seminary, I was very much uh, moved and taken by the message of, of the Psalms by uh, Dr. Walter Brueggemann. Uh, that had a big effect on me. But also just reading, uh, just reading older authors. Uh, I've been kind of revisiting, revisiting the Puritans, and so that's been good. So Spurgeon's letter lectures to my students is one that I think every pastor should have on his mm. shelf. I've profited from the pastoral writings of Eugene Peterson. I think every pastor um, should be reading those, especially his pastoral libor- library, which includes titles like Under the Unpredictable Plant mm-hmm. and Working the Angles. Those are very important because I think a lot of guys, um, they come, they, they may have gone through Bible school and seminary, and they don't emerge with a clear understanding of what the historic pastoral role is. Mm-hmm. So those are good. From the cult side, uh, the older, the older um, books, um, Dealing with cults as in terms of social dynamics, of course, anything by Ronald Enroth. Uh, most of those books are out of print. These days, if you're going to read about cults in terms of as unhealthy environments, uh, read anything by Stephen Hassan, like Combating Cult Mind Control. Um, I want to say Rick Ross is another uh, cult expert. You've got some cult experts who are like theological experts. So Dr. Walter Martin's uh, Kingdom of the Cults is invaluable. You should um, you should avail yourself of that. Those have all been very good. And then there are a spate of books that are emerging now mm-hmm. talking about certain religious movements. Um, 
and I'm, I'm not going to mention them all, but there's so many. All you have to do is, is type in spiritual abuse and cult in Amazon, and you'll get all sorts of testimonials. Yeah. I've read some of those recently, and those are very helpful as well. Yeah. Well, thank you, Christian, for the recommendations. Um, a number of those books will be in the episode notes, show notes for this episode, so you can find those on Amazon um, and uh, benefit from those. Well, Christian, I want, just want to thank you so much for uh, taking your time to share uh, your story and your heart for this. I know we weren't able to get really into your pastoral ministry experience, but there was so much here that I think will benefit people in the church today, and um, I hope uh, people are as blessed by it as I was, so thank you. Joel, thank you for having me, and thank you for your questioning, and thank you for all that you're doing with your own podcast and helping uh, Christian Mishagna and myself with ours. And so uh, we look forward to what God has for us. Well, there we go. I also want to thank the sponsor for the show. It's Blue Water Free Methodist Church. We're an intentional community reflecting Jesus to our world. And, of course, I want to thank you, the listener, for joining us on another episode of the Pastor's Call podcast, where our hope, goal, and mission is to encourage those who are interested pursuing or in the pastoral ministry by hearing the stories of those who've gone before. You can find our episodes wherever podcasts are found. Please do subscribe. Please do interact with uh, leaving a, leaving notes or leaving a rating. It'll help other people find the show and be blessed by it. And in the meantime, share this episode with your friends and family. Share it with your pastor. And we'll see you on the next episode. God bless.